Part One of An Extract from On the South Lancashire Dialect by Thomas Hayward, Esquire, F.S.A. Printed for the Chetham Society, 1861. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This extract begins on page 40 and continues until the end of the text. We are unable to find an earlier or a better example of the South Lancashire vernacular than that which John Collier of Milnrow has left us. A hundred and twenty years have passed since the materials for Tim Bobbin were begun to be gathered, and the author and his circumstances were singularly adapted for the compilation of such a book. The Reverend John Collier, the father of the author of Tim Bobbin, was descended from a race of small landholders at Newton in Mottram, Cheshire, and appears to have been the younger of two sons. His elder brother long surviving him, we may conclude John was left to provide for himself as best he might. He was born 1682, and styles himself Minister of Stretford in 1706, being licensed to Eccles School in the same year. Footnote. Register book at Stretford. End footnote. This school was neither free nor then endowed. Notitia Chestriensis, Volume 2, Part 1, page 53. Stretford Chapel depended almost entirely on a voluntary contribution of £10 per annum. Ibid, page 95. Collier resided at Ermston and had only a small school there. In 1709 he is styled Curate of Eccles. There is no certainty as to the period when he was ordained deacon. In 1716, John Collier, a literate, was admitted to perform or discharge the office of deacon at Hollinfair, Hollins Green, ad peregendum officium diaconi, Gastrel's Register. In 1722 he became partially blind. Footnote. Quote, Probably the sight of one eye only was affected and this seems to be perpetuated in a portrait of him in the possession of Mr. James Clegg of Milnrow, in a blue coat and scratch wig, sitting in a large chair, and reading a book which he holds at a distance with both hands. He has an acute expression, and apparently aged about fifty. End quote. Canon Reigns. End footnote. In June 1725, with many others, he was compelled to take priest's orders at Chester. His wife died at Hollins Green, 1726, and the poor curate and schoolmaster withdrew from a world that had not smiled upon him in 1739 at Newton in Mottram. John Collier, the third son of the above, was born in 1708 at Ermston. Footnote. Birthplace of Tim Bobbin by Mr. War, 1858. End footnote. And thus speaks of his youth. Quote, He's Lancashire born, in the reign of Queen Anne, he was a boy and one of the nine children of a poor curate in Lancashire, whose stipend never amounted to thirty pounds a year, and consequently the family must feel the iron teeth of penury with a witness. These indeed were sometimes blunted by the charitable disposition of the good rector, the Reverend Mr. Haddon of Warrington. End quote. From a memorial in his own handwriting, Tim Bobbin. Westall's edition, 1819. For Haddon, see Byram's Remains, Volume 1, page 45. 
Hollinfair was in his parish. He was a rector from 1723 to 1767. Quote, so this Tim Bobbin lived, as some other boys did, content with water porridge, buttermilk and jannock, till he was between thirteen and fourteen years of age, when Providence began to smile upon him in his advancement to a pair of Dutch looms, when he met with treacle to his pottage, and sometimes a little for his buttermilk. However, the recollection of his father's former circumstances, which now and then start up and still edge his teeth, make him believe that the pluralities are no good, end quote, etc. Dedication of the Book of Heads. The father, estimating highly his son John's talents, endeavoured to bring him up to the church, but when afflicted with blindness, the elder Collier, being about forty years old, sent the boy to a trade. Quote, Went prentice in May 1722 to one Johnson, a Dutch loom weaver, on Newton Moor in the parish of Mottram, but hating slavery in all shapes, I, by divine providence, veiling my skull-cap to the mitres in November 1727, commenced schoolmaster at Milnrow. End quote. Footnote. Tim Bobbin, 1819. End of footnote. He styled himself for many years after he had abandoned the loom, his apprenticeship to which only lasted twelve months, Tim Bobbin, Fellow of the Sisyphean Society of Dutch Loom Weavers. Footnote. The allusion to Sisyphus justifies the silence as to this loom in the common histories of the cotton manufacture. Quote, the Dutch loom was brought to England by some Flemish artisans in the beginning of the 18th century, and their principal settlement was at Boltonley Moors. End quote. Those who adopted it had an advantage over the old English loom. Quote, the shuttle was thrown and caught by the hands of the weaver, and the Dutch looms continued to be popular until the invention of Kay's fly shuttle, for which there was a patent, 1733. End quote. Canon Reigns. Having thus emancipated himself from everything but the necessity of obtaining food, clothing, and lodging, John Collier entered upon his wild career. Quote, Though then very young, fifteen years old, he soon commenced itinerant schoolmaster, going about the country from one small town to another to teach reading, writing, and accounts. End quote. T. Footnote. T for Colonel Townley of Belfield, son of Richard Townley, mercer of Rochdale, and steward for Mr. Alexander Butterworth of Belfield. This last gentleman died, aged 88, in 1728, and left his property, having no near relations to his steward, who was succeeded by Richard Townley, his son, and Tim Bobbin's friend. The wife of Townley the draper was a daughter of William Greaves of Gartside Hall near Rochdale, a superior yeoman. He had a son, William Greaves, whose rise in life was not less remarkable than that of his relatives, the Townleys. He was born in 1699 and died 10th March 1787. Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 62, page 277. He was steward for Trinity College, Cambridge, and commissary of the university, and fellow of Clare Hall. He purchased Fullbourne, Cambridge, in 1742, licensed Cambridge, and through his wife became possessed of considerable Norfolk property, finally adding Beaupre Bell to his name on that account. 
he educated colonel townley carefully having no children of his own but the nephew turning out an extravagant person he left his property to his great-nephew the colonel's son the father of the late member for cambridgeshire for william greaves see byron's remains volume one page three hundred and thirty nine he figures in the bentley period colonel townley was a learned and intelligent person and his friendship for collier like that of haddon for the curate at hollingfair affords a different testimony to the qualities of father and son than we otherwise obtain townley liked collier and his predecessor at the school pearson probably because they like himself sought the punch and tobacco of the neighbouring taverns both were clever and entertaining men and neither had that education which enabled him to assume a superiority over his patron townley died in eighteen o two end of footnote being at oldham he heard that mr pearson curate and schoolmaster at milnrow wanted an assistant in the school and after a short examination he was admitted as sub-master and equally divided the salary of twenty pounds with the other as this school with the exception of an interval of some months was served or professedly served by collier from seventeen twenty nine to seventeen eighty six some knowledge of it is essential to his biography Quote, the free school at milnrow was built by richard townley of rochdale mercer in seventeen twenty four and endowed by deed eighteenth august seventeen twenty six by alexander butterworth of belfield esq with twenty pound per annum the nomination of a master being reserved to the owner of belfield hall for the time being the first master appointed was the rev robert pearson b a incumbent of milnrow who was not a very reputable agent of townley and who probably never taught the scholars but divided the salary between himself and one richard hill and others end quote. john collier in his turn quote, who passed as ushers to pearson though put in by townley end quote. chancery proceedings twenty second january seventeen thirty five lancaster manuscripts volume thirteen page two hundred and eighty eight canon reigns pearson the incumbent was an intelligent person brother to the reverend john pearson rector of eccleston he was a frequenter of taverns a bachelor and lived in lodgings in rochdale with townley's brother-in-law why the family of townley instituted a school to be thus supported we cannot now ascertain it looks like a stratagem for procuring influence over butterworth the teaching did not go beyond reading writing and the elementary parts of arithmetic the real duty seems to have been to be agreeable to the patron at belfield hall collier twice tells us that he began his milnrow career in seventeen twenty nine but he did not until seventeen forty four quote, veil his skull-cap to the mitres that is procure his license from the bishop pearson died in seventeen thirty nine and the twenty pounds a year then passed to the usher we have no account of collier's life from seventeen twenty three to seventeen thirty nine some amatory effusions of this date are printed in one april seventeen thirty six the signature tim occurs and tim bobbin is appended to the dedication of the blackbird seventeen thirty nine a satire on justice edward chetham of castleton a barrister and wealthy neighbour through life collier overlooked the facility with which his own proceedings might be attacked 
political justices and self-indulgent pluralists may be social nuisances but careless pedagogues are still greater teaching and roaming filled up the measure of collier's bachelor days corrie calls these the happiest years of his life and in them he betrayed great qualities for with no ostensible advantages and indeed surrounded with difficulties he acquired a knowledge of drawing music painting modelling and etching which however imperfect is truly wonderful when we remember the circumstances under which they were attained if hogarth's discipline in art gained in london from a cutter of heraldic devices is a matter of surprise what must be thought of a person who endeavoured to become an artist in the wildest parts of lancashire in the eighteenth century townley says of collier quote, he drew landscapes in good taste understanding the rules of perspective and attempted some heads in profile with very decent success these he abandoned for caricature like teniers and jan steen collier attempted sacred subjects quote, at Shaw Chapel, on each side of the east window, are still large figures of Moses and Aaron, painted in oils on board by him, and at Milnrow, a figure of an angel with a trumpet in his mouth, and holding a scroll in one hand, on which the psalm was announced from the singing loft, Canon Reigns. He was also a carriage and sign painter, and the drinking rooms and stairs of public houses, even to Newcastle-upon-Tyne, were adorned by his works his sons in default of higher employment were house painters occasionally and so probably was the father Quote, he was ingenious as a sculptor and i have seen one or two figures cut by him in ivory canon reigns like hogarth whom he imitated collier finally adopted etching and finding it the most profitable art surrendered to it his other pursuits notwithstanding the humour which he could not fail to throw into everything he produced and though south lancashire before it had art treasures exhibitions diligently patronised its native painter yet collier's pictorial works are really below criticism his object is buffoonery and even this he had never sufficient knowledge of drawing and painting to set forth he strained after expression and became barbarous and grotesque there is not a ray of taste in anything we ever saw of his doing he both took and copied portraits one an autograph effigy of himself swung over the milnrow inn after seventeen seventy and is engraved as the frontispiece of the human passions delineated in seventeen seventy four amongst other pictures collier wishes to send to london quote, the head of the chameleon dr shebir the best head i ever painted end quote footnote for shebir see lord stanhope's history of england seventeen sixty three and gentleman's magazine seventeen fifty eight to nine and seventeen seventy seven end of footnote it is evident that from an early period our dialect had become the study of collier he collected the materials of tim bobbin in the pot-houses in which so much of his life was passed and where as with hogarth a broken head or a drunken fight furnished welcome additions to his notebook and portfolio not that collier philosophically observed the gradual elimination of character under intoxication he rather acted the part of goldsmith's squire at the three jolly pigeons 
and hence the truthfulness of the descriptions in Tim Bobbin. An oral language cannot be collected by the means by which Jacob Grimm and Dr. Trench propose to replenish our dictionaries. The books in which dialects exist are living men, and there never will again be found so inveterate a rambler, so great a lover of mixing with his species, or one so capable of turning all he saw and heard to profit as Collier, and he further prepared himself by reading for his task. Dr. Whitaker somewhere says, he was a good Saxon scholar. It was not possible for one of Collier's temperaments and habits to deserve such an eulogium, but he evidently read for his work on the dialect. We find him possessed of, quote, several Saxon collections with English versions, end quote, Summoner's Vocabulary, Chaucer, the Scotch Glossary, Gawain Douglas's Virgil, etc. Footnote. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales he acquired in 1769. It was a Caxton, and is noticed in a letter to Henry Whitaker of Manchester, November 26, 1770. Quote, the two Whitakers were brothers from Rossendale, one of whom, Henry, was a schoolmaster at Manchester, and the other, Robert, a land surveyor and steward to Colonel Townley. End quote. Canon Rains. Collier occasionally assisted the latter, and both were his constant friends. Quote, I have found out the true worth of a book I purchased the last year. I knew it to be a valuable curiosity, but now I find it much more so. It is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and I take it to be the fourth or fifth book that ever was printed in England. End quote. Westall's edition of Tim Bobbin, 1819, page 366. He adds, quote, there are but two copies besides mine known to be in England, and these imperfect, and so is this of mine, for I think it wants two leaves at the beginning. End quote. He supplied these in his own perfect method, being admirably skilled in copying types. The book passed into the hands of his descendant, Charles Collier, who lent it to various persons, and amongst others to one who sold it for a large sum to Earl Spencer. The family of Collier, hearing rumours of this sale, applied to the borrower for the book, who thus wrote, 14th July, 1815, quote, It is reported that I have sold that imperfect book I bought of Charles Collier for a deal of money. I deny the report. I have neither sold it, nor yet given it to anybody, but I will confess this, that I have lent the book to a gentleman for a few months. It contains 276 leaves, or 552 pages, and very imperfect for all that. One was sold at Mr. Evans' sale in London, 12th May, by auction, for the sum of £48, or guineas, but in good preservation. On application being made to Lord Spencer, and stating that the book had been borrowed and sold without the knowledge of the owner, and requesting to know the sum given for it, Lord Spencer sent five pound, adding that he kept no account of the sums given for books. Canon Rains. End of footnote. The glossary to Tim Bobbin is even in this day a very creditable work. Witness the use made of it by Jameson, Carr, and others. In 1739, Collier succeeded to the school at Milnrow. Twelve pupils were taught gratis, the rest were paid for. He did much of his work by deputy. The assistant, Thomas Belfield, quote, 
a man of humble powers, end quote, he designated his curate. And thus ensuring to himself money and leisure, he felt at liberty to advance his fortunes by those methods most congenial to his instincts. He was the lively suitor in verse and prose of the neighbouring damsels. He presided over the symposia in the Roebuck at Rochdale, the Falcon at Littleborough, and the Alehouse at Milnrow. He wrote satirical verses, but when he made the fruits of his brain first profitable for money, we are not informed. On the 1st of April, 1744, John Collier married at Helmsley, Mary Clay of Flockton near Wakefield, he being 36, she 21 years old. She was possessed of some property, and her father bought and gave the young couple the house in which they resided at Milnrow. A more ill-assorted match could apparently hardly have been made, yet we believe, owing to Mrs. Collier's good sense, it was less unhappy than might have been expected. The husband was neither unkind nor absolutely careless of the obligations imposed upon him, provided he might discharge them after his own fashion. His duties and affections were squared to his habits, and he certainly kept clear of the disgraceful family jars which darkened the career of his idol and contemporary, the profligate Churchill. Mr. Townley describes Mrs. Collier as a, quote, virtuous, discreet, sensible and prudent woman, a good wife and an excellent mother, end quote. We suspect her greatest praise is here omitted, and that she was a sincere Christian, and married to a person who represented Whitfield and the devil singing psalms in one of his pictures. Mary Clay had been brought up at Leadstone by the pious Lady Elizabeth Hastings, and after the death of that memorable person, she passed some time in London with her aunt, Mrs. Pitt, who was married to an officer of the Tower, and being on a visit to another aunt, Mrs. Butterworth at Milnrow, there encountered her future husband. Corrie says, Tim Bobbin, edition 1819, that, quote, Collier devoted so much of his wife's fortune to large potations that it was soon dissipated, end quote. We trust this is not true and no authority is given. Quote, he then became sober, and led a more regular life, which made Mrs. Collier aver she was glad when the money was all gone. End quote. We find this excellent person offering her gentle protest against her husband's excesses, yet maintaining his respect and affection. We gather this incidentally. Quote, and thinking I had enough, went home almost as sober as you could wish me. End quote. Quote, I got to bed pretty soon, but not drunk, madam, as I fancy I hear you think. End quote. Quote, I went, or if you please, madam, staggered to bed. End quote. A passage is in a letter addressed to Mrs. Collier when the writer was seventy-three years old. The habit of drinking was held much less revolting then than now. When the wife in Collier's quack doctor complains that her helpmate, quote, from morning till night is eternally in the alehouse, end quote. He replies, quote, It is genteel, the squire does the same, end quote. Amongst Mrs. Collier's friends was the wealthy widow, Mrs. Hardman of Allerton near Liverpool, who died in 1795, aged 93. The influence exercised by Mrs. Collier amid so much that would give it the intensity surrounding darkness gives to light, 
must have been felt in her domestic circle. One of her children, Mrs. Chadwick, who died at an extreme age in 1843, maintained to the last the character of a sensible and pious person, and perhaps, if others of her daughters had been known to the present time, we might here record the happiness they derived from their mother's principles. On the 12th of June, 1751, Collier went as bookkeeper to Mr. Hill of Kebroid near Halifax, removing with his family, and here he remained seven months, and thus speaks, 5th January, 1752, of his escape from the regular service and high pay of that place. Quote, I am upon the eve of being John, Duke of Milnrow again, for my rib with my bag and baggage are gone over the hills into Merry Lancashire, and twelve teams of devils shall not bring them hither again. End quote. He regarded this Yorkshire service as a transformation quote, from being a little monarch into a kind of slave. End quote. His constant friend, Mr. Townley, reinstated him in the school and perhaps a more unfit person for such a duty could hardly have been chosen. Collier, thus rejecting affluence, applied himself vigorously to his own methods of supporting himself. In April 1758 we find him at Chester, quote, I paint sometimes at Mr. Brown's a coachmaker here, end quote. Westall's edition of Tim Bobbin, with many original letters, Rochdale, 1819 page 292 in november 1755 he was a candidate with two others for the place of organist in rochdale church quote, that as i am undoubtedly the worst player of the three for which reason i stand the best chance i desire all justices to give me their votes and interest in procuring the snug convenience of twenty pounds a year End quote. he was we suppose utterly unqualified to play the organ for he proposed doing the work by deputy. Westall, page 294. His friend Henry Whittaker writes to him, 1st April 1758, quote, I don't like your being so often on the wing, for should the lamp of life be wafted out in some unguarded hour, or some unpremeditated adventure, in vain may Tim's family and friends puff and blow at the dying spark, end quote. They had evidently been in a carouse together and parted drunk. Collier replies, quote, You say you got well home, so did I, only it was the day after. So pray, sir, banish all care on this account, and remember, drunken folk are said and hurt, and that doubts near a danger. Perhaps you'll say these are but poor bandages to wrap a broken leg or arm, too weak to pull in a dislocated neck and too airy to maintain a widow and seven children. True, sir, but they'll do at present, and in future I don't intend to want them. You talk something of the lamp of life being wafted out, but what the pox! Must not I trim my lamp now and then for fear of snuffing it out? Indeed, I start at the loss my friends will have should I break my neck. Hold, no, most of them will bear up under such a dismal misfortune, and I think all of them together by clubbing will take care should i neglect it to see my epitaph cut on the stone i have by me and then let the rest i leave behind me piddle for shives end quote, trifle for chips he concludes quote, tell me whether chetham of castleton or john grime at collyhurst who works on twelve or fourteen pence a day is the happier man for my part 
i know what it is to want breakfast dinner and supper all of one day and perhaps but one meal the next and i know how to live as well as any gent in the north and yet hang tim if he does not think the scale with poverty in it draws canon reigns this was a piece of self-deception me silva cavusque tutus ab insidius tenui solabitur ervo horace was no sentiment of colliers readers note my grove and cave secure from snares shall comfort me with chaff and tares translation by alexander pope rather he would have said if he knew himself aspernere ego mundum nisi mundus me jucundum bonis socius radius vitae sociali tinctis siti celebraret barnabai itinerarium readers note for the world i would not prize her yea in time i should despise her had she in her no good fellow that would drink till he grew mellow draw near and here thou shalt have all hearing joy in this my travel translation from barnaby's journal he had followed a rambling dissipated life until the impulse to secure its existence grew as irresistible as we are told the cravings of hunger are to the mole thus overpowered we must not be surprised to find the spendthrift and the sordid person united footnote alieni appetens sui profusus from sallust readers note greedy of others property wasting his own translation by frederick j stimson End of footnote. the accounts collier kept are very intelligible and minute his handwriting was extremely good when he chose to make it so he had great flexibility both with pen and pencil and also with the diamond in drawing on glass had he been allowed the advantages of proper training and a familiarity with good models his head was capable and his hand dexterous and he might have been an artist amidst his reckonings he could not resist jotting down an occasional thought like the following what greater plagues or what can happen worse than being cramped in body mind and purse there are also memoranda for the lancashire dialect fenced in with figures het is not explained in the lancashire dialect raise a reek like a bracken burner his profusion he justified as being calculated in seventeen seventy three he thus replies to a covert attack on his extravagance made by his son charles Quote, i observe what you say on an extravagant way of living which i hope you will not practise so much as i have done though all my acquaintance agree that i had never gained one half of the friends and money i have done if i had been of a penurious disposition canon reigns there is no question that he regarded taverns and convivial meetings as opportunities for the sale of his books pictures and prints which he was always pressing the account book of seventeen seventy three gives us an insight into the resources and manner of living of our lancashire humorist he seems in constant movement some of his works were disposed of in the way of barter quote, delivered a book of prints to cause john hume to have a hat for it End quote. Quote, exchanged a book of human passions for three pound of thread at three shillings a pound blue tape a halfpenny a yard tape a penny a knot 
a gross of laces. End quote. Quote, left at Cos John Ogden's, three books, one half bound, two stitched, the half bound one to have a hat for it or nothing. End quote. Quote, paid Jas Kenyon a book for a wig. End quote. The greater part of his wares were packed in his wallet and borne by himself or forwarded by carrier to meet him in the towns. Sometimes he is repulsed. Thus at Eccleston's Hall he enters, quote, called, bad, come to call again, mum, end quote. Quote, sold Mr. Hanson a book for sixteen shillings, bad guinea, end quote. In 1773, Collier's human passions delineated are stated in the proposals to be, quote, designed in Roebuck, Rochdale, September 4, 1777, proposals of raffling by subscription for the most capital picture of Tim Bobbin's painting, the hopes of the family, conditions, that there be fourteen subscribers at five shillings each, the dice two, and at the most at three throws shillings, and the painter other four amongst the subscribers present, if any dispute arise to be determined by a majority. He who cannot attend may substitute another to throw for him, which will be as soon as the number is complete, and the money to be paid before the dice are thrown. Three subscribers' names follow, Colonel Townley, Collier's constant friend, Captain Dawson, and James Holland, attorney, Canon Rains. Hogarth's failure in defending his copyrights in the action against Jefferies might be supposed to have induced Collier to protect himself under a like wrong rather than try acts of parliament and courts. He early was curious about, quote, one bumbery, end quote, and copied his works, although the publics for which these two artists laboured were widely separated. The sums of money Collier raised by his various expedients were large. There are 323 subscribers at 15 shillings each to the delineation of the human passions. Amongst these are Mr. Edgerton of Alton, who gave a guinea, Mr. Parker of Querdon took five copies, and Mr. Hulton of Holton, three, Sir Thomas Edgerton, Sir Harbord Harbord, with Messrs. Ashton Lever, Dorning Rasbottom, Gilbert, Worsley, Pickford, Royton, Radcliffe, Foxdenton, Gregg, Chamber Hall, Holland Ackers, Henry, Apothecary, Gore Booth, Nathaniel Milne, Richard Fox, and Mrs. A-Town, Manchester, are patrons. At Halifax he had many friends. Collier was full of confidence as to the prospective success of his etchings. Quote, if anything happened to me, he writes to his son Charles in August 1773, I hope my book of heads will bring your mother forty pounds or fifty pounds per annum, and expect they will be little fortunes for your sisters when your mother and me are no more. End quote. The prints of the pluralist, for some years previously to 1773, were very popular, and sold at ninepence each. Here Collier's most intense feelings were engaged, for he no doubt was satisfied his father would have had a better chance had one living been apportioned to each clergyman. In 1762, Westall, page 321, Collier's paintings were required for the West Indies, and he also exchanged them for wine. But his great attention to money matters is nowhere more decidedly evinced 
than the two negotiations for the marriages of his sons, John in 1768, Charles in 1773. Of the first he writes, Westall, page 357, quote, The lad's smitten with no beauty and with no great fortune. I believe it will be four hundred pound, end quote. There appears to be nothing on the son's side, and he received the money unconditionally. Quote, Here I have shown, I think, for the first time, my worldly mindedness, and made in a love affair an arrant bargain. End quote. Westall, page 361. The second had been chosen by a Roman Catholic, the widow of a contractor for horses for government, aged forty-eight, he being twenty-two and a Protestant. He writes at Kendall, August eleventh, seventeen seventy-three. Quote, Will matrimony admit of a strict examination with my mother and you, with regard to one that is twice the age of me? Tis without doubt she likes me, and I admire her money. She has a hundred pound per annum and a well-furnished house, and she is endued with judiciousness, but one would not imagine she was by fixing on me. I have meditated long upon this affair, and I really think now that her good sense and fortune is an adequate recompense for the deficiency of youth and beauty. Pray consider of it. I am in no hurry, but if it is to be, I wish it over. End quote. The father states the communication is very welcome to him, that he has known youth and beauty add much misery to married life, and has, quote, heard several wish they had married mere dowdies, end quote. Quote, if the object you point at be but about forty-eight, a good-natured and sensible woman, I give my hearty consent, end quote. He then urges his son as soon as he is able to lend him one hundred pounds, quote, but hark you, dear Charles, you do not say where or in what her estate consists. Have you seen the title deeds, or what debts are owing, whether married before, if so, what children she has, whether the estate goes not from her on marrying again, whether in any business, whether the estate goes from you on her decease? End quote. There is an interesting letter of Collier's to Monsieur Delacour, a painter at Edinburgh, January thirteenth, seventeen sixty, Westall, page three hundred and five. They had met four year before at Chester. Vaudemine, Pickering, Bocock, Jones, and Galino were then the portrait painters in this part of the country, and were friends of Collier's. Astley, the painter, had arrived at Chester, and his appearance created a profound sensation. His large portrait of himself, once at Duckingfield exhibits him as a handsome person and an artist of a class almost beyond the comprehension of collier and his friends quote, mr astley from london has been some time at chester and the adjacent towns report says he is a very handsome and polite gentleman of about two hundred pound a year he dresses gay keeps a chariot and liveryman and will not touch the canvas under eight guineas a head End quote. astley was a good artist and the pay here designated by no means extravagant he is best known in cheshire from having at this visit and collier chronicles the affair obtained the hand of lady daniel duckenfield penelope vernon of hilton staffordshire who had been since seventeen fifty eight the widow of sir william daniel duckenfield in whom two large and ancient families were centred the daniels of tabley and the duckenfields of duckenfield 
there was a daughter who soon after this marriage died and the mother following astley married again and conveyed these large estates to strangers in this letter collier speaks thus disparagingly of his own art Quote, i follow my old trade of boggart painting and find fools enough to buy them as fast as i can paint them and often thank god he did not create mankind without a large number of fools in the species and that so very few of them understand painting i live very well i keep a horse of my own and neither borrow saddle nor bridle and in summer ride three or four times a week to the bowling green at rochdale i have a cow also a pig two ducks and a cat in the name of saint luke what would a painter have more End quote. Westall, page 308. In March 1765, Collier entertained the idea of getting into the church and filling the curacy of Unsworth. Westall, page 234. It was a monstrous intention in one who in so many places has shown that he lightly held the principles of Christianity, and especially in the letter to Mrs. Collier, September 10th, 1780. Westall, page 386. In December 1766, he rode to York with his son John, Westall, page 338. In December 1767, the time chosen for these long rides was not the best. He set off to Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where his sons John and Charles were. Quote, I got into York in good time. The person I would first speak to was my friend, Mr. Atkinson, who, excuse vanity, jumped for joy on seeing me. He conducted me to a good inn, sent billets or cards immediately to such as would be agreeable company to us, and ordered supper at my inn. There were present His Grace, the Duke of Milnrow, my friend Atkinson, carver and projector, Monsieur Boutaltz, a good history and portrait painter, a Fleming, Mr. Russell, writing-master, Mr. Hindley, a noted mechanic and clockmaker, and a merry captain. These were a set of the best-natured mortals I ever passed an hour with since my name was Tim. I need not tell you how we spent the evening, but happening to show them my Battle of the Flying Dragon, they made me read it twice that night and once the next morning. We parted about twelve, all merry but sober. Tell this to my crooked rib as a wonder. End quote. It was not frequently that Collier's festivities had so justifiable a character. Thus, jesting, drinking, painting, and etching, the inevitable hour approached. There was, directing the fate of his sons, and especially the eldest, a nemesis engendered in the father's irregular life. These sons, on being emancipated from paternal supervision, as Collier tells us, sold all their Milnrow garments. Quote, Charles has got a pink bloom suit, dyed in grain of twenty shillings a yard, John has several suits of fine black cloth of the same price, and both laugh at my church-going suits of three and sixpence a yard. End quote. Westall, page 395. The appearance, dress, and manner of these young men were above their station in life. The origin of John's, the eldest, misfortunes, was politics and warring with government and the corporation of Newcastle. He wrote prose and verse, exciting himself to the utmost, lost his wife and sought retirement in Lancashire, made a second and unfortunate marriage there, treated his wife brutally, joined in politics again, 
carried pistols, and fired at the editor of a newspaper. He was deemed insane, and closed his life in a lunatic asylum in 1815. Thomas, the second son, was at first apprenticed with John at Newcastle, but quarrelled and left him. In 1768 he was in London and was employed by George Alexander Stevens, whose lectures on heads are well known. Thomas had a natural son, an auctioneer in Rochdale, who published an edition of Tim Bobbin's Human Passions Delineated, 1809. Of Charles's marriage we have already spoken. He too was apprentice with John at Newcastle, but settled as a portrait painter at Kendall in 1772. He was a fine-looking man, but eccentric and extravagant. The last letter we have seen of John Collier, Tim Bobbin, is written in a tremulous hand, and is addressed 2nd November, 1783, to his son. Quote, Things remain as you left them. Betty's gone to house, in part of ours. They are all well, but your poor mother. She is something better, but not much. Rich and Sal drive on but my old peepers cannot pierce far into futurity. I have painted a good deal of things since you left us, sold some, and drink punch betimes still as customers come in. Make sure to keep sober, which is more than he could do who is, dear Charles, your loving father. In his religion, Collier was altogether unsound, and in his politics a hater of kings. The two absurd couplets here given were found in one of his pocket-books, to be, we suppose, enjoyed in secret. I hate all kings and the rogues who wait on them, knaves swarm so at court, and flatteries so common. To these misfortunes of royalty, if it really is so afflicted, Collier could only give a testimony gathered at Milnrow. I hate all the kings and those who attend them, and wish that stocks, gibbets, and ropes may amend them. It is recorded on the gravestone in Rochdale Churchyard that, quote, John Collier died 14th July 1786, aged 75, in parentheses 78. Tim Bobbin, also Mary, his wife, died 4th June 1786, aged 63, end quote. Quote, the foolish doggerel cut on the gravestone, said to be written by himself, twenty minutes before he expired, was written by his grandson Thomas Collier in 1818, when it was inscribed on the stone, much to the annoyance of Dr. Drake, the vicar, who was not consulted, and said he should give orders for its removal, which he seems to have omitted doing. Canon Rains. End of Part 1